Welcome back to the Classically Practical Podcast, the place where we try to explore the tremendous practical applications for our own time and place of thoughts and ideas that were articulated thousands of years ago in that time that we like to call classical times, which is mostly the Greeks and the Romans, but other um, Christian authors who followed in their stead. Last time I decided to look at the issue of the critical difference between human beings and animals, which, as I labored to show in the last episode, I think we don't really take all that seriously in our own culture, because largely we've tended to anthropomorphize or human form animals to a rather extreme degree that I think obscures a lot of the difference between ourselves and them. So if you haven't heard that first episode, I think you should really go back and look at that first because I'm going to pick up now continuing on the same thread from, firstly from Cicero, whom I was quoting last time, and then uh, a little bit from Aristotle to show more, I think, about what this power of speech that we have as humans that the animals don't have actually leads to, um, and I'll try to close with some thoughts on how I think that should reorder uh, the way that we all tend to talk about politics. So picking up from last time, where Cicero had distinguished between um, the things we share in common with beasts, mostly instincts, physical instincts, um, and the power of reason, which only human beings have. I'm picking right up there with his next thought. The same nature, by the power of reason, unites one man to another for the fellowship both of common speech and of life, creating above all a particular love for his offspring. It drives him to desire that men should meet together and congregate, and that he should join them himself, and for the same reason to devote himself to providing whatever may contribute to the comfort and sustenance not only of himself, but also of his wife, his children, and others whom he holds dear and ought to protect. Furthermore, such concern also arouses men's spirits, rendering them greater for achieving whatever they attempt. So, if I may restate, um, perhaps a little more simply, the things that Cicero is saying here, it is this power of reason that human beings have and that animals do not, a uh, power which issues forth in us in ordered speech that can comprehend the causes of things, their antecedents, the similarities between them and other things, and then combine all of that with consideration about future events in order to reach prudential decisions. This power, according to Cicero and many ancient political thinkers, is the reason why we are driven to congregate with other human beings, if you will, to make societies, because we have certain things in common with animals, and you know, we can go out into the wilderness and live with animals if we wish, and domesticate them to some, to no small extent, depending on the animal, but we can't really have concourse and fellowship with the animals the way that we can with other human beings, because, again, not to be simplistic, but this is what it boils down to, animals do not have the power of speech. Animals can make noises. Animals do make noises. Animals 
make known to us feelings that they have, desires that they have, through the noises that they make. And so do we to other humans, but our noises absolutely fundamentally transcend the noises that animals make because our noises are ordered and rational and convey information from one mind to the other. Information that can be used to actually understand past, present, future, and so forth and so on. So, according to Cicero in this quote that I'm reading, it is this power of speech that drives us, uh, the power of reason uh, issuing forth in the power of speech, that drives us to congregate with other human beings. And that in turn leads, quite interestingly, to a very different way of thinking about politics. Um, I don't know what you think of politics, but it's my impression looking around the world that we all inhabit that politics is a word we use to describe power relationships. Maybe you understand what I'm saying the moment I say that. We, we all tend to think of politics and political as words that describe a rough-and-tumble quest to get power over other people, to make sure that those people cannot do things to us that we don't want them to do. And on the flip side, sometimes, more often than not, to make sure we can make them do stuff that they don't want to do, because that's what we want. That's how we use the word politics. It's, it's all about power. It's all about scrambling for domination over others and to prevent others from dominating us. Well, let's just Put all that aside for a second. Let's use this power of reason and speech that we're talking about. Set that aside. Let's just say we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to say that's what politics is. Let's start instead with that power of reason and speech and see where it gets us in terms of a redefinition of politics. So some pages later, Cicero goes on to say this. For since it is by nature common to all animals that they have a drive to procreate, the first fellowship exists within marriage itself, and the next with one's children. So far, so good, but listen to this dynamite next statement. Excuse me, not this next statement, but in just a moment. Then there is one house in which everything is shared. Here it is. Indeed, that is the principle of a city and the seedbed, as it were, of a political community. Let me stop there and back up. It is, according to Cicero, it is the common nature all animals have that leads to procreation, as he said last time, and, the ta and taking care of the offspring. It is that that in human beings leads to the establishment of marriage and a household in which everything is shared, and that it is that thing, the marriage and the household, that he calls the seedbed of a political community. Meaning, politics is fundamentally and foremostly rooted in the natural family. It is not, as we think of it, a scrambling about to dominate other people and to make laws that... that uh, inculcate our own desires and make sure that nobody can make us do what we want to do. That's, that's not politics. We, we call it politics, but that is not politics. Politics is the seedbed of the political community, is the marriage and the household that is rooted in 
nature, our common nature, simply to procreate, to have ourselves an image of ourselves, as Aristotle will put it, go into the next generation, um, and a power that drives us to congregate with other speaking beings in order to make political communities or cities. Let me read just a little bit farther here in Cicero after he talks about the seedbed of the political community. Next, there follow bonds between brothers, and then between first cousins and second cousins, who cannot be contained in one house, and go out to other houses, as if to colonies. So if you're following along and you're agreeing, yes, yes, the family, the family is the root of politics. Isn't that what we, our conservative Christians especially, are always saying? It's the family, the family, the family. Yes, but we cannot stop with the family, and that's what the, the natural family, that's what Cicero is saying here. Next, there, fo there follow bonds between brothers and then between first cousins and second cousins who cannot be contained in one house and go out to other houses as if to colonies. Finally, there follow marriages and those connections of marriage from which even more relations arise. In such propagation and increase, political communities have their origin. Moreover, the bonding of blood holds men together by goodwill and by love. For it is a great thing to have the same ancestral memorials, to practice the same religious rites, and to share common ancestral tombs. So, I have to say I find all this incredibly fascinating, especially in light of the, the what I think is the modern definition of politics and political that I mentioned earlier. According to this... We are by nature speaking beings, and that separates us most fundamentally and unbridgeably from animals. We are not animals. We share certain traits with the animals, and so on the level of those traits, we can be called animals. But we are not beasts. We are not supposed to act like beasts in our relations with each other, and that's because we are speaking animals not simply animals who grunt and make noises and follow whatever instinct uh, or emotion happens to pop up at the moment. We get angry, so we're going to do this, and we're going to call that politics. No, that is not politics at all. Politics is rooted in the family, and if you know anything about the family, the family is supposed to be a community based on concord and love and sharing and mutual giving and receiving for the betterment of all of its members. That, I submit to you, is politics in its truest definition. And again, it's based on the fact that we're speaking creatures and not beasts. That, that's a Roman thinker, a Roman philosopher, Cicero. Let me shift to a Greek thinker, Aristotle, whom almost everybody has heard of and whom so many people think is just for college students, people who are going off to get degrees in philosophy, and, you know, I haven't got time for all that, I can't understand all that. That's all just college stuff. Well, I, I can see how sometimes things are translated in such a way that they're very difficult to understand, and people with busy lives don't have time to sit around and read a couple hundred pages of Aristotle in a book called The Politics, you know, the things moving just a lot faster than that. You see what those Dems did today? Oh my goodness, it's time to get out there and stop these people from taking over. And and we just and then 
off we go. We have no idea what we've just said. We're not thinking about how we've used this amazing power of speech to say some of the most breathtakingly shallow stuff one could ever say, just like beasts grunting, barking, meowing. That's what we've done, reacting on the basis of whatever has come to us on, our, on the tip-top most level of our senses, and we call that politics. Well, we couldn't run a family like that, let alone a city or a state or a country. We really need to back up in our thinking about politics, and we need to start with this kind of stuff right here. What is the difference between animals and humans? What does it mean that human beings can speak? What are these things called words that we are always using so casually, so terribly, terribly, sloppily and casually? Let me get here to Aristotle, who is going to say a few more interesting things about this. Uh, this is from his book called The Politics, book one. He writes, Now that man is more of a political animal than bees or any other gregarious animals is evident. And Let me stop right there. Granted, we human beings are not merely animals, and because of the baneful influence of evolutionary theory on practically everything under the sun, we Christians tend to sit around and say, oh no, we are not animals, not in any sense whatsoever. We are humans made in the image of God. We are not animals. Granted, within the framework that that, that statement comes, but we are actually animals in the sense of bodily instincts and impulses and even bodily form. And that's why I think we, need, we can come back to a thinker like this, Aristotle, and not really be all that offended that he says we're a we are political animals. So let me start that quote over, having explained that. Now that man is more of a political animal than bees or any other gregarious animals is evident. Nature, as we often say, makes nothing in vain, and man is the only animal whom she has endowed with the gift of speech. And whereas mere voice is but an indication of pleasure and pain, and is therefore found in other animals, for their nature attains to the perception of pleasure and pain, and the communication of, of that from one to the other, and no further, the power of speech is intended to set forth the expedient and the inexpedient, and therefore likewise the just and the unjust. Time to stop again, because we need to process this. I want to ask you to think about it. What is speech? What are these things, words, that you allow to flow out of your mouth rapid fire every single day? Me too, I'm not singling you out. We all do this. We just open our mouths and out flop the words. Words, 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 words. Constant stream of words all the time. And when it and when it's something that we care about, it's all just this big, great, big, passionate bunch of fussing and carping. And again, you know, I'm sorry to pick on the conservatives. I am a conservative, but I think our language is just debased in this. Just can't believe what those Dems and socialists are trying to do to everybody. Can you just believe how stupid all these people are? Blah, 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 blah. Why don't we slow down? Why don't we stop and ask, what is this thing called speech that we are allowing to pour from our mouths? Aren't the people that we're talking about also speech makers? What does that mean? Whatever we think of them, however we may disagree with them, 
they too are political animals, just like us. And they're over there on their side doing the same thing to us that, that I was just representing us doing to them, all the just the pouring forth the torrents of speech about how stupid all those conservatives are and blah, blah, blah. We got to get, get out and get po politically mobilized and make all these laws. And again, none of that is politics. Absolutely none of that is politics. That is just a bunch of beasts grunting and meowing and roaring at each other and simply reacting on the basis of whatever impulses happen to hit their senses at the time. It's not politics. It's just a bunch of beasts. If we thought about what it is that we're doing when we speak, we might have to slow down and rethink this thing called politics. Aristotle just got through saying that, unlike beasts, we're the only ones that have the power of speech, and it's therefore only human beings who can actually set forth the just and the unjust. Dogs do all kinds of communication with each other. Cats, dolphins, all kinds of animals do all kinds of communication with each other. But do you imagine for one minute that all those barking dogs in your neighborhood at night are barking back and forth to each other about the justice or the injustice of the latest thing that their master has done. Oh, can you believe he kept the bone from me and he gave it to somebody else? I just can't. The, the law says, oh, this wicked tyrant, blah, 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 bark, 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 bark. Do you actually think that's what the dogs are doing? I don't, and I hope you don't either. They're just making noises. They're, they're communicating something about their, their state of mind, their emotions, whatever the case may be, but it's just inarticulate noises, and that is not what human beings are doing. When we talk, we are talking about the just and the unjust, or as Aristotle put it, the expedient and the inexpedient, and we're talking to other speakers who can understand us because we're trying to persuade them to do something, to agree about something that is a matter of common concern to all, that's politics. So let me get back here. Cicero had said that the family is the seedbed of the state. Let me, let me continue in that vein. You've got to keep that in your mind, that the natural family is the origination point of the state. And we can talk about the state some other time. I think a lot of Christians have a deep and fundamental misunderstanding about what the term state means. And it leads to all kinds of inarticulate gruntings, sorry, about statism and the like. That's usually what that is. It's just a bunch of inarticulate gruntings based on fears and, and conspiracies and all of that. It's, it doesn't really have anything to do with political speech. At any rate, let's get back to Aristotle here. It is a characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust, and the like. And the association of living beings who have this sense make a family and a state. He who is unable to live in society, or who has no need because he is sufficient for himself, must be either a beast or a god. He is no part of a political order." So, again, this is just a very, very different way of thinking about politics than we tend to think of it. And notice, again, it starts with nature. What is natural about man? What is natural about beasts? And what is the difference between man and beasts? 
I hope you're following along with this because I think if you follow these thoughts out, you're going to have to come to a different kind of understanding about what it is you, yourself, other people are doing when they engage in something called politics. It's just not what we think it is. And this other thing we do that we're calling politics is, again, I'm, I'm really not trying to be offensive. I'm following these, these ancient authors and applying them to our own times. So much of what we call politics is really just inarticulate grunting, as if we're just a bunch of monkeys sitting around jabbering at each other and, and, and poking sticks at each other and things. That's just, that's just simply not political. It is a, that's a fundamental abuse of the word if we're trying to look at where the discourse of politics originally came from, from the sorts of authors that I'm talking, that I'm quoting here. Let me try to finish out this Aristotle uh, citation before I end here. It's a characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust, and the like, and the association of living beings who have this sense make a family and a state. He who is unable to live in society, who, or who has no need because he's sufficient for himself, must be either a beast or a god. He is no part of a state. A social instinct is implanted in all men by nature, and yet he who first founded the state was the greatest of benefactors. This is a powerful quote here. Listen to this. For man, when perfected, is the best of animals, but when separated from law and justice, he is the worst of all, since armed injustice is the more dangerous, and he is equipped at birth with arms meant to be used by intelligence and virtue, which maybe he may use for the worst ends. Wherefore, if he have not virtue, he is the most unholy and the most savage of animals, and the most full of lust and gluttony. But justice is the bond of men and states." For the administration of justice, which is the determination of what is just, is the principle of order in political society. Unfortunately, I'm running out of time. I would like to say more about this, but let me just try to draw it all together. I'll, I'll, I will say more about it. I'm going to have to run into a third episode on this, and, that, and that's okay. It's best not to rush these things. Let me bring this down to a summary. So what, what we've seen in the first couple of segments here is that Human beings are similar to animals in a number of ways, chiefly instinctual, but unlike animals, human beings have this power, this amazing, crazy power of rational speech that can perceive consequences, antecedents, take past experience into consideration in order to deliberate about what can be done in the future. And this is just so fantastically far beyond anything that animals can do that it's a wonder we don't see it. So where that leads us ultimately, I, I think, not just I think, I'm, I'm quoting from these authors. This isn't some opinion I made up out of my own fevered brain. This is an ancient, very ancient way of thinking about things. According to this, politics is actually a rational activity that is fundamentally based on the difference between ourselves and animals, chiefly speech. And that's why words are so important and why anytime we engage in truly political actions in and with and towards other speakers, we really have to take great care with the words that we speak. Because if we don't, we're just grunting like a bunch of inarticulate beasts. And so I'm going to leave it at that and 
next time I'll read a little bit more and try to talk a little bit more about how this power of speech creates a true mode of politics and a false mode that is unfortunately called by that name but isn't. Welcome back to Classically Practical, a podcast where we look at ideas and principles articulated a very long time ago in the works of the Greeks and the Romans and the medieval Christians, and we discover that although these things were written a very long time ago, they have a great deal of practical relevance for our own times. So in the first episode, I started talking about the difference between human beings and animals And I was basing that uh, largely on a passage from the Roman orator Cicero, his book On Duties, uh, book one of that book. And then along the way, I ended up quoting a little bit of the Greek orator Isocrates and a little bit from Aristotle. I wanted to come back to this topic because it is by no means finished. As you remember in the first segment... I developed at length from the writings of those men that the key difference between animals and human beings is speech. I'm not going to repeat all of that from before because there's a lot more that needs to be said, so I'm going to pick up again here with Book 1 of Cicero's On Duties to something he says after the other items I was quoting before. He writes uh, in Section 49 of Book 1, Perhaps we should examine more thoroughly what are the natural principles of human fellowship and community. First is something that is seen in the fellowship of the entire human race, for its bonding consists of reason and speech, which reconcile men to one another through teaching, learning, communicating, debating, and making judgments, and unite them in a kind of natural fellowship. It is this that most distances us from the nature of other animals. To them we often impute courage, as with horses or lions, but we do not impute to them justice, fairness, or goodness, for they have no share in reason and speech. So here, if you think about what I just quoted, he says much that is similar to the earlier quote in developing the idea that whatever forms of communication and emotion and the like that we may see in other kinds of animals, there is a fundamental difference between them and ourselves, and that difference is precisely on the faculty of speech. Notice that he said, I'm going to quote it again, "Um, the bonding of the entire human race consists of reason and speech, which reconcile men to one another through teaching, learning, communicating, debating and making judgments, and unite them in a kind of natural fellowship. And then he goes on to say that this is not something that the beasts have. And honestly, I think that's fairly indisputable. I know people will frequently bring up the example of dolphins, for instance, how they seem to really be communicating with each other through their beeps and and, uh, squeaks and all of the other noises and and, uh, gesticulations that they make. And I can concede that there may be some sort of communication going on there and that perhaps the scientists involved in studying those amazing creatures, the dolphins, are going to be able to show 
again, that there is a form of communication going on. Nevertheless, I will ask you, where is the dolphin civilization? Where are the dolphin arts? Where are the dolphin political associations with each other? They're not there unless they're so far down below the ocean that we cannot get down there and see them. The point here being some sort of communication, some sort of emotive ability and the like is not enough to say that, well, other creatures do this too. This thing that we do with politics and the arts and the sciences and all of that. Um, Actually, no, they do not. There is nothing in any of our recorded observations about the animal world that show these kinds of activities being done by animals. I think it's just to conclude that they cannot do these things, that there is a fundamental difference between them and ourselves. At any rate, that's the point I was trying to develop at length in the first episode of the podcast. Now I'm going to go on, I'm going to turn the page here and read some more from Cicero about this critical difference between man and human, uh, man and animals. He says in section 54, For since it is by nature common to all animals that they have a drive to procreate, the first fellowship exists within marriage itself, and the next with one's children. Then there is the one house in which everything is shared. Indeed, that is the principle of a city, and the seedbed, as it were, of a political community. Now he goes on, but I'm going to stop there just for a second, because I really think we need to ponder what he's saying there. In our day and age, we have this thing that we call politics, and chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you are yourself pretty interested in politics. Perhaps you follow it often, that you keep up with the news, you try to stay abreast of current developments, uh, particularly with regards to whatever party you happen to support, you're probably pretty well engaged with these things, um, and you think of them, as we all do, under the name politics. Well, if you look at that thing, if you watch Twitter, for instance, or if you follow the news cycle on your favorite website, whether that's a Christian one or a non-Christian one or a combination of them, I think if you really look at that, what you're going to see being called politics is a mad scrambling for power and influence, a frenzied kind of quest to always make sure that no one gets the better of our side but that we are getting the better of them because after all we are right with a capital R and they are wrong with a capital W and we just cannot stand the idea that they capital T may get into power and force us to do things we don't want to do friends you know what I'm talking about that is what we call politics And I'm going to just have to be a little blunt on this second episode and say that is not politics. At least not if you want to root your thinking in the ancient texts and the ancient sources that led through long historical development to our own time period and to which we are still very much indebted in so many ways. That thing that we call politics, what you're watching on Twitter what you are viewing on ranty little YouTube videos that are trying to tell you all the evils that are going on on the other side of the aisle, 
That's something, all right, but that's not politics. Let's come back to what Cicero said about the seedbed of the state, and I'll try to make that a little clearer. I think it's in this context that what we're reading here from Cicero is the utmost importance and fascination, really. Um, If I'm going to say that the kinds of things we're all partaking of, particularly on the internet, which really just riles up all of our passions and causes us to say and do all kinds of things that we probably shouldn't do, if that's not politics, let's go back to what Cicero says here, the common part of nature that we even share with the animals that leads to procreation and in humans to marriage, which produces children, this, Cicero says, the family is the seedbed of a political community. This ought to be automatically of interest to anyone who calls themselves a conservative, particularly a Christian conservative, because isn't one of our major concerns how the family has been eroded over the last several decades and how it is just in dire straits today? One of our most important political arguments has to do with protecting the family from all of the corrosive forces that are coming against it, whether that be in schools or in the media or in entertainment or any other thing we could think of, uh, particularly from political opponents. We are very concerned as conservatives with the family. Well, isn't it interesting that here's one of the greatest pagan thinkers of all time saying, It's the family that is the seedbed of the political community. Where does politics start? Not with people yelling at each other and calling each other stupid because of their differing understandings of policies. That is not where politics starts. Politics starts in the family, the seedbed of the political community. There is just a world of difference between this kind of understanding of politics and that other thing that we like to call politics, but really isn't. Uh, Hopefully in a later podcast, we'll see that that other thing that we like to call politics, but isn't, is really more uh, properly conceived of and talked about under the domain of rhetoric, uh, the use of words in order to persuade people to move and do things in a certain direction. And that is related very much so to politics, but it is not itself politics. Again, it's more the domain of rhetoric, the thing that we call politics. We need to go back to this older way of thinking and see that politics is the thing that starts in the family. And so that was Cicero saying that. Uh, I'm going to shift again to a Greek thinker, Aristotle, who explains that thought in, I think, a bit more clear and uh, better detail. So when we turn to Aristotle, to his book that's especially called The Politics, also in book one, it seems like I'm probably never going to get out of the book ones of any of these things that I'm quoting from, In section 2 of book 1 of the Politics, Aristotle says this, He who thus considers things in their first growth and origin, whether a state or anything else, will obtain the clearest view of them. In the first place, there must be a union of those who cannot exist without each other, namely of male and female, that the race may continue. And this is a union which is formed not of deliberate purpose, 
but because in common with other animals and with plants, mankind have a natural desire to leave behind them an image of themselves. So, already we see Aristotle, who temporally preceded Cicero. It wasn't as if what I was quoting from Cicero were things that he himself made up. Aristotle preceded Cicero by several centuries, and it's arguable that Cicero is channeling Greek philosophy into the Roman context when he said the things I said. So really, we're kind of going back to the source here. When we go to Aristotle, we're going all the way back to the Greeks. Aristotle says if you want to think about politics, if you want to understand what politics is, you need to talk about that thing in its first growth and origin. And that, he says, is the union of those, the two who cannot exist without each other, the male and the female. And he goes on then to talk about the family. The male and the female obviously produce children. That, in turn, produces a family. So, again, where does politics start? It starts with the husband and the wife and the children. Not with a bunch of people screaming at each other on the internet about policies. That is not politics. At any rate, Aristotle goes on to talk about how, okay, you've got this family. Well, what happens with the family is simply the production of and the provision for the daily needs of just those people who are making up that one family. And so he goes on to say, you still haven't got politics yet, you just have a family, but you have the root of it. He goes on to say, when several families are united and the association aims at something more than the supply of daily needs, the first society to be formed is the village. And the most natural form of the village appears to be that of the colony from the family, composed of the children and grandchildren, who are said to be suckled with the same milk. Now again, think about what he's saying here. He's talking about how... The true thing, the thing that is actually called politics, begins with the male and the female uniting to leave behind behind an image of themselves. Cicero goes farther and says, this is the family. It starts there, and then it expands into the next generation with the children, and the extended family with the grandparents, and so on. But that's still not politics. What you have there is what he calls a village. So he moves on and says, When several villages are united in a single complete community, large enough to be nearly or quite self-sufficing, the state comes into existence, originating in the bare needs of life and continuing in existence for the sake of a good life. Already I have to stop again because the word state means something to us today that it did not really mean to the Greeks and the Romans who wrote these things. And so a great deal of confusion can be had when we read these old books and we see them using the word state. I've lost count of the number of conservative uh, Christians, for instance, especially uh, those involved in classical education circles, as am I, who will read these old texts like Aristotle and Plato and Cicero, and they'll see the word state, and they immediately go, ah, statism. That's what these pagans were about. These pagans were about the state, the government controlling everything. And there's no way I'm going to allow the government to control me. I mean, just look at it, right? It's full of stupid people on the other side of the political uh, 
spectrum who are doing all kinds of things that I don't want to do and they're just ruining everything. There ain't no way I'm letting the state control me. Well, this is just fundamentally a misreading of the ancient texts. Um, Whatever state means in our own context, we can argue about that all day long if we want. If we want to go back to the original sources of what politics is and we see the word state, we'd better stop and find out what in the world they're talking about because they're not talking about the same thing we are. Uh, Aristotle and Cicero both, if they use the word state, they are talking about an institutional structure with that you could say is the government, I guess, if you want to say that in our terms, but it wasn't the same kind of thing. It wasn't a big clanking bureaucratic machine that tries to get its fingers into everything as it does appear to be for us. So if we're trying to purify our thinking about politics and go back and find out what actually is politics, where did it come from, and we go back and start thinking about the union of the two who cannot exist without each other, the male and the female who have the children, then there's the grandchildren and the other extended family members who come in that make a village, and then several villages come together to create a condition where all of the basic needs and more of life are provided because of all the the specialization that comes from different people with different abilities and talents and so on. That thing, the thing that provides for all of the needs and really the good um, luxuries, if you will, of life that make life really worth living, that's the state. And that is politics. But notice again, for the third or fourth time, where it started. It didn't start with a bunch of people arguing about who was going to have power for the next four years and as politics. No, it started with the family. It started with a man and a woman getting married and having children. That is politics, or at least the seedbed of politics. So that's why Aristotle goes on to say that the state, here in this part I'm reading from, the state is a creation of nature and that man is by nature a political animal. That offends a lot of people on multiple levels. It offends a lot of Christian conservatives, especially just the mere notion that the state is a creation of nature. Oh, no, it's not, they'll say. The state is just an external foreign entity that is usurping on my own rights and privileges and always trying to take stuff away from me and make me drive a certain speed and tell me what I can and can't do in public. And no way, no way am I going to allow that thing to tell me anything because I'm a political person and I'm free. So goes the rhetoric. And it's just really, it's just so much confusion the way that we talk about this stuff because We don't understand, like these older authors did, that none of that that we're talking about is politics. Those are, those things that I just mentioned are, if you were um, to use a a fancy term, epiphenomena of politics, things that come out of the practice of politics. But politics itself is more relational and is based on the family and beyond or behind, standing behind the family on the mere fact that human beings are speaking creatures. So Aristotle goes so far as to say the state 
the thing that comes about from the natural relations of the family and other families joining together for the for the provision of needs first needs and then for the provision of the good life for everybody that thing is called the state and it's a creation of nature and therefore human nature that is and therefore man is by nature a political animal now aristotle's going to get in our face a little bit more here because he goes on right after what i read and he says he who by nature and not by mere accident is without a state is either a bad man or above humanity what in the world is he saying here all these older thinkers are talking about human nature. They're not talking about, oh man, they are not talking about who gets to sit in a fancy office signing bills into law and making other people do what they want them to do, which again is, is what we falsely call politics. That is not what any of these older authors are talking about. When they say politics, they're talking about something that comes out of human nature as a speaking, rational animal. And Aristotle's going so far as to say, if by nature, if, if you as, as whatever you are, a person, if by nature you think of yourself as not having a state and really not needing a state, you're either a bad person or you're not even a human. That's just super offensive to a lot of people to even hear those words said. You're a bad person if you don't have a state or else you're not even a human being. You're, you're above a human being. And honestly, it does take a lot of thought to figure out what he's talking about here. And that's why I have belabored over and over again, why I've said about 52 times now, the fundamental point here is that man is a speaking animal and that politics comes from the family, not from simple quests to grab onto power. Once you start thinking down those lines, then you can actually almost be driven to agree with Aristotle that the state, defined like I just did, is a natural product of human nature, and that therefore if you don't have a state, you must be a bad person or else not even a human being, you're something else. You know, it's interesting that he goes on here. If you know Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus, the journey of Odysseus to get home after the Trojan War, if you know that story, you're going to remember that he encounters the Cyclops, this horrible one-eyed monster that eats some of his men and uh, refuses to let them go, and so they have to perform a trick to get out of his cave. Hopefully you know that story that I'm talking about here. Aristotle, after saying that whoever doesn't need a state is either a bad man or above humanity, Aristotle quotes Homer from the Odyssey, from that very section of the, uh, of the um, Odyssey where we're talking about the Cyclops. He calls him the tribeless, the tribeless, lawless, hearthless one. And that's exactly how the Cyclops presents himself to Odysseus. We Cyclopses don't need... Um, we don't need community. We don't have to get together with each other and use our words carefully to deliberate. And you know what? We didn't even care about the gods. We don't know anything about justice and laws and the gods, and we don't even care about that. And I'm just going to grab your men and eat them because I can. Aristotle says if you don't understand that politics is a production of human nature rooted in the fact that we're speaking beings and all that that entails, 
You're either a bad human or you're like this cyclops. You're not even a human at all. Or, on the other end of it, you must be a god because gods don't need a state. They have everything that they need. They're perfectly self-sufficing already. So you're either, you're either like a cyclops or you're like a god if you don't have a state. So that's what, that's what Aristotle says. Um, and again, he reinforces the idea of the difference between man and, and animal that I'm talking about. He goes on to say, Nature, as we often say, makes nothing in vain, and man is the only animal whom she has endowed with the gift of speech. And whereas mere voice is but an indication of pleasure or pain, and is therefore found in other animals, the power of speech is intended to set forth the expedient and inexpedient, and therefore likewise the just and the unjust. And it is a characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust and the like. And the association of living beings who have this sense makes a family and a state. So again, he's saying the proper way to think about state is not as some kind of mechanistic bureaucratic interloper standing outside of you and making you do all kinds of stuff that you don't want to do. Um, in modern parlance, this bureaucracy that has a monopoly of force in a given territory, that's not a state in the older sense. Um, we can talk about, we are going to have to talk about more that more later when we get into the, the uh, um, concept of rhetoric, but the state is the association of living beings who are speaking beings and who use that power of speech to set forth the just and the unjust. And he says again, what I've already said a bunch of times, there are no animals who do this. This is a characteristically human activity, politics, coming from the fact that we are speaking animals and that we make families beginning with the community, the, excuse me, with the husband and the wife and the children and build up from there. That is not something that any animal does. And that is the fundamental difference between humans and animals in this older way of thinking. I'll have more to say on this later, but it is time to draw this to a close. Thank you for listening and hope to see you back next time. Thank you.